Good evening, how are you guys going? Uh, at least one person knows my name. For those of you who don't, uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the student ministers here at 6.30 Church, and tonight we are cracking out Psalm 97. So, I hope you've got that open in your Bibles. Now, for those of you who are taking notes, uh, you would have received an outline on the way in, and that's going to give you a rough guideline about where we're going to head for the rest of tonight. Um, today we're starting three weeks in the Psalms. Uh, And those psalms are 97, 98, and 99. And we're taking some time out and we're specifically looking at psalms that have something to say about the majesty of God and the kingship of God. Now, this is going to be really good for us these next three weeks. I'm currently writing an essay at college. I'm at a Bible college in Sydney. Uh, And one of the things that keeps coming up as I read for this assignment, it's on prayer, is that it's not just enough to be able to know how to pray, the mechanics of prayer, what it is that you need to pray for, But right at the heart of what prayer is, is the person that you pray to. And so what that means is that any meditation, any focus on who God is, his character, his works, his person, it's never going to be wasted. Uh, And so the next three weeks, that's exactly what we're doing. We're looking at God, we're trying to understand his kingship, his majesty, uh, and hopefully that will bear fruit in our lives. Now tonight's fruit is gladness. I'm going to give away the game straight away, okay? I'm not going to kind of hold the cards close to the chest. I'm going to tell you exactly what this psalm is going to be doing right at the beginning, and that's because the psalmist does. Okay, So we're going to jump straight in. Pull out your Bibles. Have a look at verse 1. Look at what he says in Psalm 97. He starts with an exhortation. He says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coasts and islands be glad. So on one level, this psalm is incredibly straightforward. Okay, I'm going to boil it down to a simple equation for you right now. The equation goes like this. The Lord reigns, therefore rejoice and be glad. Everything else that happens in this psalm, it hangs on this key relationship. The reality, God reigns, the response. We rejoice, we are glad. Now conceptually for us, that's not a very difficult concept to get our heads around, but the real problem for us as we go through this psalm tonight is trying to figure out how this is going to look on the ground in real life. Okay? Because gladness, gladness, it doesn't come easy for us, does it? I mean, you just need to turn on the news, you need to look perhaps even to your own family situations and you see a lot of things and a lot of reasons to be sad about. And on the flip side, if you aren't in that position, usually when we're glad, we're actually just happy that life is going well and we have things that we want. Gladness, it's elusive, it's hard to get. How are we going to get it? So the question I want to be asking tonight, the question I want you guys to be asking yourselves tonight is, am I glad? More importantly, more specifically, am I glad in the fact that God reigns. In order to do that, we're going to look at both ends of the equation. We're going to look at the Lord reigning, and then we're going to look at the response of gladness. Uh, And that's basically going to be it for tonight. So let's start with number one, the Lord reigning. We move from a declaration in verse one to a description in verse two. And I just want to throw this out there before we start reading it. I cannot think of an image that is less gladdening to the heart than this one. All right. So let me read it to you and see whether you agree with me. Verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of of the Lord of all the earth. The psalmist chooses a thunderstorm 
And this isn't your kind of run-of-the-mill thunderstorm, like, oh, holy crap, the, um, the rain that's coming down, we need to run out and take the washing off the line. This is the sort of storm where it kind of pops up and you're just like, oh, no, I need to grab the kids, I need to grab the wife, I need to grab the family. We need to go down into the cellar, we need to huddle in a bathtub, and we need to stay awake, frightened for our lives with each clap of thunder. Now, we've seen these storms, right? We haven't really seen them very often. They don't tend to happen much in Sydney, although we did have that tornado thing last year. These are the sort of storms, you've seen them, you stand there and the whole sky is just clear. The air is still and then you feel a change in the wind. You look towards the horizon, there is a dark cloud, a dark wall coming towards you and it hits you hard and hits you fast. And when you emerge after the night time from your hidey hole, wherever it is that you hid from the terror of that storm, everything is laid flattened. And the psalmist says God is in the storm. His throne rides the winds. Fire burns all who oppose him. The very earth trembles with fear. And the mountains, solid rock, well, they melt like wax. Are you feeling glad yet? I mean, if you're a teenage boy, you might. You love breaking stuff. But the reality is, this picture is so terrifying and so scary. Why on earth does the psalmist choose it? Let's continue. Verse 6. The picture slightly changes. It pulls back. And now not only are we looking at the glory of God displayed in the heavens, but we see the people on the earth below looking up and beholding his glory and his righteousness. Now, this idea that the heavens, the earthly world, is a display of God and a proof that God exists, this isn't the only place that that occurs. We see it in Psalm 19, in particular in the Psalms. But the place where it's really significant is actually in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1. Yeah, so the Apostle Paul, he actually takes this idea and he runs with it. Uh, and I want to read from Romans chapter 1 so you can actually understand the gravity of this verse. Because this verse is a key verse as we understand the psalm. Now hopefully it's up on the screen. I'm not sure. I didn't check. But if not, that's alright. I can read it. Shake of the head. Excellent. Well, you guys just have to do the hard work of listening. I'll try to read nice. This is from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20 for those of you who want to go and look at it later. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Key phrase, Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, For his invisible attributes, that is to say his eternal power and divine nature, they have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. That's the creation. Final part. As a result, people are without excuse. God has made himself known in creation, which means nobody on the face of this planet can say that God is unknowable. His glory is there to be seen, which means that anybody who denies that glory... Well, Paul says that that is born out of a wickedness that wants to suppress the truth of God. And as far as Scripture is concerned, God has either embraced or he's denied. You're either serving him or you're serving something other than him, something less than him. And you know what that means if you're one of those people, right? You face the storm. Let me read to you verse 7, Psalm 97. Let's get back into it. All who serve carved images, those who boast in idols, will be put to shame. All the gods must worship him. 
Are you feeling glad yet? Two things happen when God arrives in the clouds in judgment. First, it's fairly straightforward. It's the beginning of verse 7. People who are serving the idols are shamed. They have put their confidences in things, in idols that are made from trees, which God made. And God says, nah, any confidence that you have that is not in me, that confidence that will not save you from my wrath on the day of judgment. See, people's foolishness, their misplaced loyalties, they're exposed. And second, and this is the slightly stranger one, the spiritual beings that lie behind the idols are forced to submit to God. Now, at the end of verse 7, if you look at that last little line in the Hebrew, it literally says, worship him, you gods. It's a command, which implies that there is somebody there to obey the command. Now, that might be a new idea for some of you, and that's okay, right? It, it makes a lot of sense, actually, because our society is in a society that is embroiled in something we call materialism. In other words, we don't believe in a transcendent reality. All we believe in is what we can see and feel and touch, the thing that is in front of us, the materials of life. When we see a carved idol, we see a lump of wood, and we kind of laugh at the fact that people 2,000 years ago would worship that. Uh, the reality, though, is far more scary. Yeah, the demonic lies behind every denial of God. And we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We see it in 1 Corinthians um, is it 2 Corinthians 4? No, sorry, what am I thinking? Well, we'll come back to that later, that's all right. 1 Corinthians 8. Um, the demonic lies behind every denial of God. And that actually makes our world a far more treacherous place than the one that we thought it was. Because it means then that these verses have something to say to us, not just the people 2,000 years ago. Satan and his demons are still at work in the hearts of unbelievers and they are blinding people from seeing the glory of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4. It is a scary prospect. They're still doing the same thing. They are just so much more subtle now. In the Western society, we don't have idols. We don't have statues. We have other things that are insidious, things that our world says are actually good, success, money, a career, personal relationships. Those are the things that Satan distracts from the glory of God. And the psalmist in Psalm 97, he says, the idolater will be shamed... And the one who sits behind the idol, he will be made to submit to God. And it's here at this point in verse 8 that we finally get to see gladness. Look at how Zion, this is the capital of Israel, look at how Zion responds. Zion hears and is glad. And the towns of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, Lord. And when you stop and you think about that, there couldn't be a more contrasting image in the psalm, right? We have gone from dark clouds, fire, judgment, shame, all the way through to this beautiful moment where the voices of every household in the entire land rejoined in song. Like, how do they connect? It's a bit odd, isn't it? How on earth could the darkness and the gloom result in brightness and happiness and joy? Because like, when you think about it, and you put, put a picture in your mind, I'm sort of envisaging like a little cartoon with all these little buildings everywhere and little musical notes kind of flowing up from the top. Compare that to the darkness, the gloominess, like some guy's probably gone and gotten a whole bunch of black charcoal and just kind of made this artwork that's just horrible and depressing. Uh, you find it on some sort of thing like deviant art or something on the internet. You're just like, what is going on? How do we connect the two images? Because it doesn't make sense. And to an extent, once again, that makes sense to us because we've been raised not to delight in the, the um, taking pleasure, I suppose, in the misfortune of other people. 
Yeah? Uh, except for maybe funniest home videos where people get hit in the head with a ball. But generally speaking, what happens is that we feel that it's profoundly evil to delight when other people suffer. So, so what's actually happening here? Is Israel gloating at, at his enemies? The fact that they've been kind of slapped in the face and Judah's kind of alive and, and kicking and rejoicing? What's going on? To understand their response, what we need to do is head to the next verse. Funny that. Verses follow, they explain things. And read verse 9. Let me read it to you. Here's the reason. Zion hears and is glad. Verse 9. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all the gods. See, the people of God, they are not gloating here. They are actually celebrating the fact that God has been shown to reign over all things. And that reign is displayed in judgment. And this is where the rubber really hits the road for us. Because the equation we talked about at the beginning, remember? The Lord reigns, therefore we're glad. Well, it starts to break down here. Because I think most of us, if we kind of step back and we're honest with ourselves, we're comfortable with the idea that God is sovereign, that he is ultimately in control and all-powerful. Where we get less comfortable is when we start to think about the implications of that rule and we start to think about the fact that if God is really all-powerful, then one day he is going to enforce that rule and the pretenders and the usurpers will actually be brought low. Does that make you glad? Because it should. I think the real issue that we have here is that we do not realize the tremendous evil it is to deny the glory of God. To choose to serve something that is less than him, worse, to choose to serve something that is fundamentally against him. The Lord says in Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Judah rejoices because God is exalted and that is how it should be. He is finally shown to be the most high over all the earth. Every person who denies his glory is shamed. Every person who steals his glory will be subjugated. And it is the Lord's reign made manifest, made visible to the world that makes the saints rejoice because God is in his rightful place. Now for Israel, the original audience of this psalm, that is a distant hope. It's like being in your seven and hearing about something called the HSC. You just don't know what's coming, right? They were surrounded by nations that had made their, their, their gods idols. They were harried at all sides by physical invasion and warfare, by more subtle things of intermarriage and people trying to pull them away from the God who is truly the God. And they actually looked forward to a day where God would arrive in the clouds of judgment, he would rescue his people, and he would establish his rule over the entire earth, make his glory shown and known around the entire globe. Time passed. And when God finally did arrive, he didn't arrive on the clouds of judgment. He came as a man. That man's name? Jesus. And he was the perfect image and display of the glory of God. But instead of shaming the wicked like we'd expect him to from verse 7 here, they shame him by nailing him to a cross, the most shameful and despicable death you could have at that point in history. And he died. But the Lord reigns. Because with his death, he broke the power of Satan, the one who was in the, in, in the hearts and working in the hearts of people who had disobeyed God. He suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. He, he walked into the storm so that we wouldn't have to. 
so that we, instead of being shamed, could be glad. And then after he died, he came back to life. He ascended to heaven. And then what happened? Well, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what the theologians call Christ's session. He was enthroned, Ephesians 2, above all ruler and authority, power and dominion. It was proclaimed from the east to the west, across the entire earth, throughout the heavens, the spiritual realms. It was said that Christ is king. Are you glad yet? Because our God, Jesus Christ, has been exalted above all other gods. Every power, every ruler, every authority and dominion, both on earth and in heaven. And all that is left for him to do is return and judge. And when he does, you will either tremble at his presence because you have denied his glory or you will rejoice. All of it turns on whether you have submitted to the king that God has put on the throne. And it's to that end then that the psalmist in verse 10 starts to address the people that have bowed the knee to Jesus. And he gives them two commands. Let's have a look at what he says in verse 10. He calls out to them and he says, You who love the Lord hate evil. He says, Because God reigns, hate evil. Don't just not do it, but actually despise it, hate it, abhor it in your heart. See it for what it is, because it is rebellion against the rule of the true God. Now, as our society becomes increasingly anti-Christian, and it is, the pressure for us as Christians is going to be to compromise our beliefs and our behavior. And it's only going to get worse. And it is easy for us in that space to think that because judgment is not instantaneous, because we don't physically see Jesus ruling on a throne and calling the shots, that he's not coming back. See, it's not just in the forefront of our minds. We forget that God is reigning. And so obedience to Christ for us in today's age in this society is only going to get harder and harder and harder. But that doesn't change the command. What it does do is it helps us make sense of the rest of verse 10 and actually seize on it and value it even more. Because we, like the Jews before us, were surrounded by people who denied the glory of God. And by way of comfort, what God does is he tells us that he will protect us, that he will rescue us, that he'll preserve our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. As a matter of fact, if you are a Christian, you will. But what it does mean is that the God who reigns over all of the earth looks upon you with a fiercely loyal love. He will not see his godly ones come to harm. Nobody will threaten their eternal life with him. Because remember, at the cross, he freed us from the power of Satan. And he promises one day, on the day that he returns, to deliver us from all who have seen Uh, fit to try and take us away from God, who want to see his godly ones fail. Our lives will not be wasted at judgment. Instead, they'll be protected, reserved for eternal life and joy with him. And in the meantime, he calls us to be faithful and obedient to the king. And he promises as a way to draw us forward that he will deliver us from evil. It's the first command, hate evil. See it for what it is. It is rebellion against the true rule of the true king. But second, and this is the more important command, because this is the the tone of the whole psalm, even though the road will be rough, we have great cause for rejoicing. Because God is in control. And now, because of Jesus, there is no fear of judgment. He is fundamentally for us. Verse 11, light dawns for the righteous. There are no more storm clouds hanging over our heads. In fact, there is only noon, day sun. 
No more fear, just gladness and joy. Why? Because Christ reigns. Are you glad yet? And that's why the psalmist can command us to do that, to be glad in verse 12, because we have a reason to be. My suspicion is that the reason most of us do not obey this command and find gladness so hard is not because life is too depressing, but because our God who sits on the throne is far too small in our eyes. Our God is the one who rules over all the earth. We can be glad. Because we are members of his kingdom, the things that really matter, our eternal destiny, they cannot be taken away from us. We will have life with him forever. We cannot be threatened. So my question as I close is, how often do you raise your eyes to Christ who is in the sky, who is seated at the right hand of God over every authority? How often do you raise your eyes and stand in awe and wonder at the fact that our God reigns? Brothers and sisters, look to Christ. See him ruling, overflow with joy, and be glad. Because our God reigns. Let's pray, hey? Father in heaven, how quickly we forget that you are in the heavens, reigning and ruling. Lord, will you forgive us for our small-minded view of you, for the fact that we forget that you are there, for the fact that we forget that you are in control of all things. Forgive us for not wanting to see your glory proclaimed in the hearts and in the minds and in the eyes of everybody on the planet. Lord, will you make us glad? Will you remind us of who you are? the glorious true King. Will you help us to exalt as you are exalted, to be thankful, to be joyful and glad that you reign and that we are protected and that you will one day be shown for who you truly are, the King over all the earth. Amen.